Welcome to About Empathy, a podcast that focuses on patient, caregiver, and healthcare provider experiences with serious illness. I'm Dr. Giovanna Siriani. I'm Dr. Irene Ying. And I'm Dr. Dori Sekraja. We're physicians working in palliative care and psychosocial oncology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. Our clinical experiences have taught us that there's great wisdom to be learned from the stories of the people that we care for and work with every single day. This podcast gives voice to the patient and caregiver experience and what these stories can teach all of us. Today's episode is centered around survivorship and being hopeful. Once you've been successfully treated for cancer, told you're doing well but need regular surveillance, there's both relief as well as a different set of anxieties. Life often does not go back to exactly what it was before having cancer. You want to feel hopeful about the future, but what does that even mean? Our guest today is Aviva, and she's here to share her story about what life is like after successful cancer treatment and what hope means to her. I met Aviva during her treatment and have had the opportunity and privilege to speak with her as she's transitioned from treatment to surveillance. She's an amazing writer and has written about her experience in a book titled Lost and Found in Lymphoma Land. So you and I met at the end of 2013. I remember you were given this great news that you no longer have lymphoma or the disease is gone. But by the way, you have to come in for scans and for appointments. And I remember how articulate you were at talking about how amazing and great that was, and how scary that was at the same time. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that in your own words. I mean, everything happens very quickly. I'm sure that you know that when, you know, once you're diagnosed and all of a sudden within days, people are talking about chemotherapy and then it's starting the next week, then you're in the journey and you're starting the, and you're starting the treatment and everything's just moving along. Nobody actually said anything to me, I guess, because people are busy, the oncologist is busy. So nobody actually told me what was going to happen once the process was over. So once I came to the end of my treatment, once I'd finished active treatment, I had maintenance chemo for about 18 months. And as the time was getting closer to the maintenance chemo being over, I started feeling a sense of almost terror about how I was going to identify the lymphoma coming back. And because I had an unusual form of lymphoma that I ended up with, I had a um, a tumor in my face and a tumor in the wall of my vagina, which is not usually how lymphoma manifests itself. And I was told that it could kind of come back anywhere. So I was like, well, what am I supposed to look for? I mean, if it could come back in my hand, it could come back in my head, I could come back in my, like anything could potentially be lymphoma. And at the last appointment, well, the quote last, what I thought was maybe the last appointment, I was talking to my oncologist, Rena Buckstein, who's amazing. And I said, like, what am I supposed, like, what now? What am I supposed to look for? And when do I, do I? And she said to me, oh, you're never going to be discharged. Like, I do have a kind of lymphoma. It's a small cell lymphoma. It's called marginal zone lymphoma. And it's something that will come back. That's what I've been told. At some point, it is very, very, very likely to come back. So she said, you'll never be discharged. You'll always come here. So every every six months, you'll come and I will check you out. And it was both a sense of total relief and this weird feeling of like Odette Cancer Center was going to be my home for the rest of my life in some ways. So that was just sort of the context of not 
knowing at the beginning that I was not going to have to look after everything myself and be on the lookout for things. That said, I'm always on the lookout for things. So anything that happens, like a cold that I've had for the last week or a pain or some change, like there's no reason for me not to think that that's the return of the lymphoma. And that's part of the kind of the fear that you carry around as somebody that's somebody that has the kind of lymphoma that I do, the kind of cancer that I do. But I think that's a fear of everybody that has cancer uh, to some degree. Because even if people tell you that you're completely cured or totally in remission, there's always the fear that it's going to return. And how do you cope with that? What do you find helpful? Sometimes I cope really well, and sometimes I don't cope very well at all. And I find myself freaking out about things that I oughtn't to freak out about. I did do, I did a mindful meditation course uh, oh. for a few months, and I swore by meditation and that I would do it every day. I'd gotten up to 45 minutes of uh, of meditating on my own every day, and and I think, I mean, I think meditation is something that is, that can benefit everyone. And I'm always suggesting it to people, but I don't always get around to it myself. And I'm, and I'm always kind of astounded that a few minutes of meditation can change your whole day. It's not just like you get, you get those five minutes of calm and the rest of the day is chaotic. It really does change things. So trying to just keep my attention focused on other things um, yeah. my writing, my kids. But the one thing that I think would be is different possibly for me, and I think people, well, not just for me, people, some people lean into their cancer and once everything is said and done, and I think some people lean away. And I chose to lean in. Like I chose to kind of keep my cancer and almost everything about cancer very close. I got involved in the Patient and Family Advisory Committee yeah. here at the ODAT Cancer Center. I've made many friends who've been through and are still going through their own cancer issues, even like totally unrelated to lymphoma, things far more serious than I ever had. Um, I've written a lot about cancer. I My choice was, I guess it's, weirdly keep your enemy close or something like that. You know, I just, uh, it somehow felt comforting, I guess, to try to make something of the experience that I'd gone through, both for myself um, to, to cope with it and for other people to learn from. So it's like finding meaning somehow in what you had to go through? Absolutely. For me, it was writing. Yeah. I started writing within days of my diagnosis. I sort of wrote through the insanity and the terror and the craziness and the wackiness and the boredom and the fear. And I mean, there's just so many different emotions that, that you're completely overwhelmed by and that you watch other people being overwhelmed by as you sit having chemotherapy or waiting and then waiting. There's so much of just waiting and worrying involved in the whole cancer trip. How does writing help? Because, I mean, you really are a very skilled writer. How, how does that help you? What, what happens in that process? I guess the one thing I would say 
Because people often have asked me whether writing was cathartic. Mm-hmm. And I usually say not exactly. It's not mm-hmm. like you write it and then you like, oh, yay, I'm not worried about it anymore. Like I continue to be worried about it pretty much all the time. Although distance from treatment has definitely helped. It's just something, though, about getting it out that makes it more real, but makes it more manageable. Like somehow it's like taking it out of yourself and putting it into some kind of box of a written piece. And it's fun, I I have to say. I mean, I'm a, uh, most of my memoir writing is humorous. And I found that somehow very relieving in some sense to find what was funny about cancer. And there's a ton that's funny about cancer. But what's interesting is that other cancer patients understand that, People who have not been cancer patients really don't. They kind of look at you like, why would you be making a joke about this? But it's, I mean, it's, you know, morbid humor. And people who've been in all sorts of traumatic situations use humor to deal. And cancer is no different. But it can make people uncomfortable, definitely. I think doctors understand a bit about that kind of humor. Yeah, for sure. And especially having early early in my career working in Emerge and just in palliative care, there is a, there's something about the humor, but not everybody might, might get it. (laughs) No, for sure. And you've got to be able to get it out because you're, I mean, you're working with trauma and in the case of having cancer, you're living with trauma. So if you don't find a way of getting it out, you're just going to explode. One other thing I wanted to ask you about is in your work, you've written about hope as well, but you know, it, resonated with you when that project came up because hope is something people think about of course all the time especially and you hear that word a lot in the cancer world can you talk a little bit about what that was like thinking about hope writing about it I mean I consider myself generally to be a hopeful person not in that kind of I don't even know what to say not in that sort of airy fairy sort of way but in a just kind of a deep in my gut sort of way. So I started doing research. I was asked to do research about hope in the context of stroke victims and moving forward. And a lot of what I read uh, was related specifically to cancer. And it talked about the fact that hopeful people do better. They just, they do better in terms of physical outcomes, in, in terms of quality of life. They just do better in terms of life expectancy. And the question came up, how can you actually build hope? Are people just hopeful or not hopeful? Are there ways of making people be more hopeful? And what came up, like this, at the core of everything I read was the fact that it's all about relationships and Ah. that hope is relational. So whether that's the hope that you get from your relationship with your oncologist, the hope that you get from your relationship with the friends that help you through other healthcare providers. Like it's that relational piece that makes people be more hopeful. And I think I instinctively move towards other people, both to seek help and to provide help or to be there to listen or to have them listen to me. And I think that that's sort of contributed to being able to be hopeful in the context of a diagnosis that I have to say for me was always pretty hopeful. But even watching people in much more dire cancer situations find hope and take joy from it. I love 
what you said about hope being relational. I've never yes. heard that before, but I love that concept because I think oftentimes people interpret hope much more concretely being like if they're told that for example their cancer is incurable like not accepting that as a fact and saying no I'm going to be cured from it and not understanding that hope can take on different meanings you have different types of hope a better relationship with your family better deeper understanding of yourself as a person exactly and if you look at the literature there are a whole bunch of different kinds of hope. And when we lose one kind of hope, like hope for a cure or hope that a certain treatment worked, you reach for something else. You reach for something spiritual. You reach for something connected to someone you're having a relationship with. And you use those other hopes as a bridge to new forms of hope. And that I found totally fascinating. Like it's not, hope isn't just one thing. And it's also not optimism. Like the difference between hope and optimism is that optimism is We have optimism when things are very likely to work out. And we reach for hope in the context where things are less likely, where things are tougher, and when we're not absolutely sure that it's going to work out. And that's just such a big premise of palliative care in general is helping people, hoping for the best, accepting that the best might not happen, but also when they have hope if it's not what they initially hope for, reframing hope. And that's what you just said so beautifully. Like there's not just one kind of hope. One day I was sitting at Druxy's here at, at the Odette and I met a man who was probably 20 years older than me who had a form of lymphoma that was really far more aggressive and you know not a good prognosis. And he was very, very upset. And I think he just had some bad news. And he was there with his wife. And his wife was sort of like, you've just got to, you've got to be more positive. You've got to think more positively, which is not the right thing to say. But I mean, why would she know what the right thing to say was? And she'd been dealing with the burden of all of this. And at one point, his wife and his daughter walked away. And we started having a conversation. And after he told me that he was so tired and he was very emotional, he said to me, you know, I really just hope that my, my, that my family will be able to handle all of this. And that was genuinely one of his hopes. It wasn't just like, oh, I really hope I get better and this all goes away. It was like, yeah. I'm focusing on a different hope here. And he still had hope. That was the word. Yeah. The word he used. Yeah. That's a great story. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Luigi. Um, oh, this is, it's amazing how you remember name. things like that, isn't it? You yeah, remember yeah. the name and it, it touches really, our heart. T- it absolutely does. It touches our heart. And I realized in that moment that there was something that I could say to him that yeah. his wife and his daughter couldn't because we ah. were sharing this experience. Like we right. were both there, the patients. So and that's powerful. Yeah. I think you've learned so much from your experiences and I think you've taught us so much in just this really short period of time. It'd be amazing to know, is there something that you wish your healthcare providers, your doctors, nurses, people that you met through this journey, there's something you wish that they knew about you or about your situation so that they could provide you better care? One of the things I generally wish people knew was how to give the time that's necessary for us to really absorb the information about what it is we're going through. And, you know, you get diagnosed, someone hands you the pamphlet that says, so you have cancer, and off you go. I, I don't know what even happened to that pamphlet, honestly, or that that package of information, because I never looked at it. I hadn't even been formally diagnosed yet. So I think it's partly that. And you kind of mentioned it in your question is, and, and for me, this 
did happen overall, but for a lot of people, it doesn't. It's being known as a whole person. So you're not just like a, you know, like a purse carrying a couple of tumors around from one appointment to another. You are a whole person with a life, with children, with a job that you did, with likes and dislikes and stresses. So I think that it's really that, that healthcare practitioners get to know you as a whole person and sort of in that way, know how this could be impacting your life. That it's not just about how your tumor is responding to your treatment. Exactly. It's how is Aviva doing, Aviva and her family and everyone's exactly. with this. And since I know your circumstances, I right. know how this might be affecting right. you in a broader sense and just biomedically, yeah. psychosocially. Yeah, that's amazing imagery, beautiful imagery, and also just so poignant to think, no, this is not separate from me. This is not something I carry in my purse. Yeah, it's so much a part of you. Yeah. So Aviva, I'm so sorry we've run out of time. The three of us would love to just keep talking to you, but thank you so much again for coming in today. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to About Empathy. About Empathy is recorded at Wellspring. Wellspring Cancer Support Foundation is a network of community-based support centers offering professionally-led programs and services to help people living with cancer and those who care for them overcome the many emotional, social, practical, informational, physical, and functional challenges that typically follow a diagnosis. No referral is necessary and Wellspring programs are offered free of charge. Visit wellspring.ca to find a center location near you. About Empathy is made possible through education research and scholarship grant funding from Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre. Sunnybrook is committed to patient engagement and care. By partnering with Sunnybrook, we hope that this podcast embeds patient and family experiences in all teaching and learning. To learn more about the education initiatives of Sunnybrook, visit sunnybrook.ca. Welcome back to About Empathy and today's episode survivorship and being hopeful. Giovanna and Irene, let's talk a little bit about our conversation with Aviva. One thing that really came to mind was how she talked about the tension that exists when your treatment finishes, but you still come to the cancer center. And I think that's something I see a lot in my office. You know, and there seems to be this whole world developing out there called survivorship that I really don't remember that term when I went to medical school or even in my earlier career, but it makes so much sense that after someone goes through such a life-changing event and they're now doing well, but they still might get the cancer back or they know someday they'll get the cancer back, how do they survive in the world now that they're well, but you still come and you have to have tests, you're right. anxious. Yeah. And there's some, physical, sorry, there's physical potentially exactly, exactly. implications or consequences from treatment, consequences like anxiety yeah, potentially. Yeah. So it's, you know, how do they live in this world and be resilient yeah. when they have that in their past, but they're also maybe carrying some of that in, that's their, pre- the, in their present. That's one of the biggest challenges. I have a few patients who are done their treatments. The cancer is sort of by all imaging, it's gone. Yeah but they still have a lot of pain or they still have um, a lot of fatigue and they really battle with it because 
to the outside world, they're cured of their cancer. Mm -hmm. And people are like, well, why aren't you sort of back to where you were before? Mm -hmm. But in many ways, they feel worse now than they did at the time they were diagnosed. And that's really hard for them to reconcile those things. And have that fear and worry that, you know, could the cancer still be lurking around that corner or like Aviva said, having a symptom and just being worried about what does that symptom mean for me? What's this new normal? Is this okay? Is it just a cold that's going to pass or is it something bigger? So to have to carry that around is a burden, really. You have to learn the skill to live with that Mm -hmm. unknown. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm thinking to other conversations we've had with patients, how the unknown is so frightening. And I think when you're in survivorship, there's a great deal of unknown. So, and there's different ways, like some people are told, you know, you likely won't get your cancer back or you likely will, but it might not be many years. But no matter what it is, once you've had cancer, it changes how you live in the world. And there is this idea that what if it came back, but you don't know when, you don't know how. And I think unknowns scare people, understandably. I think it's good for us to realize that's what our patients are going through, even when they've had good news or good effects from treatments, that it's not like, okay, it's back to your life the way you knew it before, Mm. because that's not what happens exactly. For some people, I think they get back to a semblance of what it was before, but cancer patients for me, talk a lot about how no matter how well I'm doing, it's not like it was Mm. before I had cancer. I think a lot of patients think when this treatment is over, when I'm feeling better, when I'm given these good reports, my life will go back to what it was. And I think it's really alarming for them or they didn't expect it to not go back to the way it Mm. was. They're learning to live in a new way. There's a new flow or the phrase new normal. I think it connects with what Aviva was talking about with hope too, is this idea of hope taking many forms and shapes and that if you're in survivorship, then maybe it's not realistic for your life to go back the way it was, but it's about coming up with a new sense of what you're hopeful for, you know, new relationships, new opportunities. So that makes me think of that connection between the survivorship and hope and Mm -hmm. hope taking different forms. That was such a powerful point to make because we so often come across hope being equated to, I'm going to survive. I'm going to live. There's Mm -hmm. a cure for my disease. And um, that has not been shown in the studies to correlate with better outcomes for patients. Sometimes families trying to protect their loved ones will say, please don't tell my brother, my father, my, my mother, because they'll give up. They won't have hope anymore and then they'll die. But that's that's not shown to be the case when people do research in this area. But I do wonder, Aviva alluded to the fact that there might be studies out there where hope leads to a better outcome, but I would be in curious In terms of survival, know, is that what you mean? Um, I'm not sure. I, I can't remember if she said survival mm-hmm. or if she said um, just like just quality of life. Mm-hmm. But regardless, like I... I would be curious to see what hope was in those situations because I think it was it would probably be more like that wonderful example she gave where you hope your family's going to be okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Going through all of this or you hope that this means that you can reconcile with your mm-hmm. brother who you haven't spoken to in a long time. There are so many other things you can be hopeful for. 
that's a good way of thinking about it. I think not that it's necessarily connected to hope, but it makes me sometimes think and worry about the pressure that's put on patients at times to either be really positive. I think that's what what Aviva was talking about in her story, this pressure to be positive or to have a fighting spirit. I just feel awful for people that they feel they have to take that on and maybe makes them feel that, you know, if if I'm not positive, then I'm the one who's... um, I caused myself not to get well. I caused myself not to get better. Mm -hmm. Or I shortened shortened my my lifespan because I wasn't positive enough. So I I just hate that idea of uh, of putting that pressure on people. It makes what you're saying to someone when you say you just have to be positive is that you have control of this cancer. And if you're just positive, it will be okay. And we know that's not true. And when they're going through such a horrendous thing in their life to put that on top mm. of it, which isn't true, we we don't get to control certain things. So I, I'm with you on feeling so bad for people. And the people saying this to them might actually believe it or they don't know what else to say. I don't think it comes from a place of malice. Most times it's coming no. from wanting oh, no. to be it comes helpful. From a good place. Yes. But it to me, patients often talk about the mm. how bad they feel because mm-hmm. am I just not trying hard enough? Yes. Am I yeah. just not being positive right. enough? And, and considering everything they have yeah. to worry about and think about, so it seems to me like that's the last thing. The they, last thing we want to do to right. them is put more pressure right. on them. And the last thing I I heard ring really loud for me was when she talked about if only they knew that idea of the word whole person that uh, you know we tend to use in medicine as well and I think what came to my mind is for all of us in medicine we do worry about how busy it can be and that we don't have enough time sometimes to do that whole person approach at every appointment but I really believe in my heart it doesn't take long And I think that when you say something like, oh, by the way, how are your two children? Just saying that you remember they had two children, and if you happen to remember names, that's so meaningful to people. And I think that helps people to realize, wow, this person really cares about me. And overall, in all the time we spend with a patient, when we make those important connections and connect to the whole person's story of their life. I don't think that causes more time. I think that lessens time. When their anxiety goes down, when they feel really cared for, I think in the end that's maybe less phone calls, less stress for them. I get how it feels like if I ask something, I might open a can of worms. But those little things, the little things just mean so much to people. The other point that Aviva made was, let's say your tumor went from five centimeters to three centimeters. You know, great. That's like a victory. But if you're in pain and nauseous and tired all the time and feeling really terrible, that's something that needs to be acknowledged and paid attention to. Because yes, you have a victory in tumor size, but you have a person who's feeling awful. Right. And so I think that's something you can't ignore. Yeah. And that acknowledgement in and of itself can make them feel better. Uh, it might not take their nausea away, but they feel listened to and they feel like, okay, I've got someone on my side who's supporting me. I can get through this a little bit easier. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of About Empathy. We hope that the story that you heard today has inspired you to engage in compassionate, authentic, and empathic interactions. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Subscribe to About Empathy to get a new episode each week. We would love if you could rate and review our podcast, and please tell your health professional, your colleagues, and your friends about our show. You can visit our website, aboutempathy.com, for more information and to read the show notes from today's episode. You can also be part of our research project. We're conducting a short three-minute anonymous survey to inform us on the content you get out of each episode. Visit our website, aboutempathy.com, and click on the Take Survey button on the top right corner. About Empathy is a Kickback Productions podcast hosted by Giovanna Siriani, Dori Sakaracha, and Irene Ying. Recorded and produced by Jackie Skinner, with additional production and writing by Laura Takahashi. Music by Jerry Finn and Jackie Skinner. The podcast is recorded on-site at Wellspring and funded by an education research and scholarship grant through Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre. Visit us at aboutempathy.com.